Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like rogues, Beauty and caddies. Mm. Oh, caddies. I'm thinking with caddies, it's either golf or it's cookies. I could go <laughs> in both directions. Or we could think about witches, switches and ditches, bitches, hitches and britches. That last one, of course, doesn't quite work. But I, I we've never done the history of witches, Sam, have we? No. Um, quite got... an obvious one, I think, though. Yes, but it, the thing would be to do it in an unexpected way. So, oh, yeah. like, it was about cheese or so. We talked about <laughs> it when we, when we did cheese. However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in very unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of switches is, in fact, all about cheating death Switching on Christmas lights and the history of celebrity. It's also about the nuclear button via World War II and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Who knew? Or that the history of anxiety is in fact all about phobias, anxious masculinity and 17th century patriarchy. It's about separation anxiety, Freud and the London Foundling Hospital. It's also all about Queen Elizabeth I and her famous tide letter to Mary the First, replete with manuscript hatchings. It's about the Cold War and anxiety about the economy, werewolves and sharks. Of course it is. <laughs> I loved doing that one. That was really, really good fun, wasn't it? It was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, you're probably wondering who is telling you all of this. Let me introduce my fellow presenter. I shall say that if history, you've got to work out, James, if this comes from a personal experience, if history were a small child, perhaps around the age of 10, preparing, standing on stage at his school in his first ever theatrical performance, but when the time came to deliver his one short line, he blanked, clammed up, froze with stage fright, unable to deliver the lines for which he had trained so long, imprinted in his brain, so important to deliver, but now crippled with embarrassment at his public failure. Let me just say, well... This man would be that personification of history's therapist. He would kindly take him under his wing and tease out those strands of knowledge and keep them in his file of research to guarantee that nothing would be lost from the past, even those lines lost to history's stage fright and buried in history's embarrassment. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Did you follow that one? <laughs> I did. That was like a sort of mini novella that you, that you penned there. And in fact, in fact, so true. OK, a picture this. Hip, hip, Horatio, a 10-year-old Daybell is the master of ceremony. I get to introduce everyone who's coming into a ball. And one of the girls in the class who was acting, uh, I don't know, she, I can't remember what she was doing. She was carrying a tray and she spilt her tray and all the drinks all over the stage. And I couldn't keep a straight face and was <laughs> utterly embarrassed about it. However, uh, 
we will come back from the uh, 1970s or early 1980s uh, to think about who, who, who you may well be wondering is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this excellent episode of Histories of the Unexpected. Well, let's just say that if he were an embarrassment-related historian, and you'll see, Sam, that I struggled with this one slightly, he'd only be the venerable bead of the history world. So embarrassed is he about his historical gifts. I'm not sure Bede was ever embarrassed about his historical gifts, but I I had to make it work. (laughs) So, So much so that you can warm your hands on his burnished cheeks. So shamed is he by the sheer amount of time he spends in the archives. In fact, he blushes at the public acclaim with which his historical powers are held. So modest and humble is he in the face of it all. I think it just about works. Of course, it's none other than your friend and mine, the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for that, James. Um, if you haven't worked it out yet, we're doing, from this tortuous <laughs> introduction, we're doing uh, the history of embarrassment and uh, my a little uh, novella, as James described it, about um, introducing James was born from personal experience. I was trying to remember the, the first time or an early time in my life when I was embarrassed and I got stage fright aged about 10 and I couldn't think of anything to say and it was horrific. Horrific. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever quite recovered from that. I think, James, you've shared a story. You've done something similar, haven't you? Did you, did you get stage fright as a young kid? I think I just shared that. Well, oh, that not, was the... Not stage fright, but... Um, I did like, th- stage hysterics. Stage, stage like. hysterics, but, but was then, you know, was mortified afterwards. Oh, I yeah. tend to sort of, you know, I tend to put my foot in it most of the time. So I'm constantly... Um, you know, mildly embarrassed. I'm in a state of mild embarrassment <laughs> about myself, you know, through, throughout the day, the week, the year. Yeah. It's terrible. But this was um, your idea, embarrassment, wasn't it? It was yes, a good one. It, it, was a, it got uh, yeah, me thinking. Yeah, it really got me going as well. Um, th- there were a load of things that I was, that, that kind of inspired me to think about. Um, uh, one of which was, uh, I was just reading some uh, through some proofs of something which was going to be published, and as a as a as a writer, um, there's always the haunting spectre of embarrassment that you're going to miss a spelling mistake in your in your in the first page of your book or the first the first line of your magazine article or newspaper article, whatever it might be, and that really made me kind of worry about the embarrassment caused by printing mistakes, and also um, with the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 which has just passed I've been reading a great deal about that and watching a great deal about it and uh, was fascinated by the BBC documentary I think it was that followed Bush around um, and the uh, the way he dealt with the news of 9-11 when he was sitting in that um, school f- uh, room full of kids and uh, I think the 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 mixture of politics and children uh, is something that inspired me to to think about how it, it, there's a history of embarrassment there. So uh, those were the first couple of things that popped into my head. Oh, lovely. I started by thinking about how we write a history of embarrassment. And I started by thinking about the science of embarrassment. So the sort of physical manifestations, the physical features of embarrassment so the science of blushing which is what i'm going to talk a little bit about feeling uncomfortable 
What is it that makes people embarrassed? So what is the biology behind it? And people who've who've talked about that. And I was doing a little bit of reading, as one always does, of Charles Darwin, and he has some very interesting things to say about that. It's very different from flushing. You know, people who flushing doesn't have an external trigger, but embarrassment does. So blushing does. And being embarrassed is my second point presupposes a consciousness of what makes you embarrassed so here there's a history of the self self-consciousness self-awareness and being aware of others so judging your feeling that you're being you're being judged and from there we can go on to my third way of thinking about this which is then you think about boundaries of behavior so activity that people don't meet up to and then fall short of, that they're embarrassed about. So we can start thinking about codes of politeness, about courtesy, about gender codes, about social codes, cultural systems where you feel embarrassed by digressing from them. So it may be that you are embarrassed about talking with a northern accent you know, down in, in refined London or that you don't hold your knife and fork in the way that other people do that you're surrounded with and feel embarrassed about that. So accents, table manners, bodily functions as well. And people being embarrassed by burping, farting, spitting, you know, whatever. And when we did our excellent and hysterical episode on the history of the fart via uh, Keith Thomas's brilliant essay, we looked at that there. The fourth point then is that it's also about societies and systems that make people feel embarrassed and there we can think about um, rituals of shaming humiliating people for discretion so failure of pupils you know pupils being asked to stand in the corner wearing a dunce's cap facing the wall this is a ritual of, of shame and humiliation and great embarrassment or transgressions of sexual morals so people are, are punished for that um, or you know, feeling people feeling outside of their, their comfort zone. And I'm going to talk about two things today. The first I've already talked about, the science of embarrassment, so around blushing. And then I'm going to talk about societies and ritual shaming. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Nazi Germany and the way in which some of those medieval public shaming rituals you know, those sort of communal rituals, throwing things at people, shaving hair, all of those kinds of things, actually resurface in Nazi Germany in really interesting ways. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So people being embarrassed publicly by the state. It's certainly a, it's a topic that seems to have come up kind of time and again, actually, when we do. I know we've done the history of shame. We've done, uh, well, have we done humiliation? I'm not sure. But um, it's certainly it, it's part of that. Yeah. And um, I, I was just I was quite interested that there, there were several themes which which popped up, um, which we which we've talked about before. Um, I'm just going to start by this. The the embarrassment of 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 mistakes linked with publishing and I'm going to talk a little about the Wicked Bible which I suspect you might know about James. Mm. It's all to do with the kind of the embarrassment related to uh, it appearing as if you do not respect the word of God or not presenting the word of God properly. So 1631 you've got a version of the King James Bible and it's printed and published by uh, Martin Lucas and Robert Barker who are about to um, firmly put their their names into the history books because it included a couple of rather embarrassing mistakes and actually led to their bankruptcy, the downfall of their printers and to um, me talking about it uh, nearly 400 years later. Um, to primarily there are two printing errors 
found within the copies, and and you couldn't make these up. I I, I actually suspect that a wag might have been involved here um, with the typesetting. Um, so in the seventh great commandment, the word "not" is left out, unfortunately. So they published "You shall commit." adultery <laughs> rather than you shall not obviously commit adultery and elsewhere um there's a there's a sentence and it's the lord has shown us his glory and his greatness um but they did not publish the n in greatness so we have the lord has shown us his glory and his great ass <laughs> at this point uh, ass meant donkey rather than a bum but still not brilliant um, just a little quote here from the report of the cases in the courts of the Star Chamber and High Commission. There is a cause begun against Mr Baker, the printer, for false printing of the Bible in diverse places of it, in the edition of 1631. In the 20th of Exodus, thou shalt commit adultery, and in the 5th of Deuteronomy, the Lord hath showed us his glory and his great arse, and for diverse other faults that they have printed on bad paper. So there are, it does suggest here there are more other things, but those are the two that really stood out. The Archbishop of Canterbury says that the printers that print for His Majesty have a very profitable place and should therefore be more careful. Um, it's interesting that the, the, not just the Archbishop of Canterbury, but the Archbishops in generally particularly furious about this, unsurprisingly. Um, the two, oh, that's really interesting because it, it's, it's about lack of control as much as anything. And, you know, it's handed over to non-church civilian printers. And I think they're concerned that it was done to embarrass the church on purpose. And the two printers are fined by the Star Court. I don't actually know what the Star Court is. I need to find out. Um, £300, which was a fortune at the time. They had printing licences removed. Um, well, I thought that was fascinating, James. You, did, I didn't know that there were licences to print. But when it comes to something like this, I assume... I mean, you suddenly realise that people must have had licences. It must have been regulated to some extent. Stationers register. The stationers company would, would licence printing. And books. Hmm. Hmm. Well, so um, the printer ended up lived his remaining years pretty pretty damn embarrassed, um, and then ended up in debtor's prison. Uh, sixteen thirty five. He's in he's uh, he's imprisoned and ends up dying in prison in sixteen forty three. Uh, that's not the only example. There was one from twenty years earlier, um, which is uh, actually it's kept in Totnes now. It's called the Judas Bible because it replaces Jesus with Judas in a very key. Um, key section of Matthew. Uh, it's twenty six thirty six. If you're wondering exactly where, and uh, and it's um, actually covered with a uh, covered up with a small tiny slip of paper. Um, so a bit like autocorrect, or at least as, you, as close as you can get to in the seventeenth century. Um, and it actually had a, a long kind of uh, a long history to it. It wasn't till the early twenty first century that the Associated Press officially removes their advice to print innocent rather than not guilty. In criminal cases, because the problem here is if you publish not guilty and you forget the word not, just as this story began with the Wicked Bible in 1631, then you're in serious trouble. So legally, um, the press were that's why the word innocent is used rather than not guilty to to save you the embarrassment of getting it 100 percent wrong by simply missing out a three letter word spelt N.O.T. Very good, Sam. Do you know, I can't actually 
bring myself to read anything that I've written that's published uh, for fear of embarrassment at the mistakes. However, if you go, nor, nor actually can I bear to read reviews unless friends kindly point out to me nice ones, because there will always be some incredibly kind scholar within the field who will point out things like typos or footnote errors or you know something that you've made that will it doesn't necessarily embarrass it just really annoys and rankles um do you find that sam or do, or do you never do not yeah, no, it does it, it's, it's always very difficult um i yeah the worst one i did was i spelt the word counting wrong and i missed out the o see if you can work that one out <laughs> No, I can't. I can't. can't (laughs) I'm literally unable to do so. I'm literally blushing at the thought of that, Sam. Which brings me to what I wanted to talk about, which is about blushing. So, you know, which is reddening in the face, um, triggered by external factors for psychological reasons. Now, blushing can be about... You know, it can be romance, it can be anger, it can be fear, you can be shy, it can be great passion or stress. But what I want to think about is this from the perspective of embarrassment. So people being embarrassed and then the chemical reaction is the face reddens. And this is because uh, blood vessels, the, the nervous system causes blood vessels to open up. And what this does is they rise to the surface and then it sort of floods the skin with blood causing uh, a reddening in the face now the trigger to this is often because of the various sort of factors that I was that I was talking about but one one individual that I'm interested in uh, Charles Darwin devoted an entire chapter to this um, in his 1872 the expression of the emotions in man and animals and this chapter is entitled self-attention shame shyness modesty blushing um, and he writes in here and I'm just going to read I'm just going to read you a little a little extract of it because he's not only interested in in this in comparison to animals but he's also interested in almost a taxonomy of blushing so he's interested in young what in infancy and young children blushing he's interested in gender and blushing um he's also interested in 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 blushing as an inherited feature uh that people have in their makeup and then he's also interested in the extent of blushing so how far does blushing go in other words is it something that is contained in the cheeks or do people blush down their entire body and and he's done he's sort of not experimented with this but certainly been in correspondence with people who have observed such a phenomenon so blushing he writes is the most peculiar and the most human of all expressions monkeys redden from passion but it would require an overwhelming amount of evidence to make us believe that any animal could blush the reddening of the face from a blush is due to the relaxation of the muscular coats of the small arteries by which the capillaries become filled with blood and this depends on the proper vasomotor center being affected no doubt if there be at the same time much mental agitation the general circulation will be affected but it is not due to the action of the heart that the network of minute vessels covering the face becomes under a sense of shame gorged with blood we can cause laughing by tickling the skin weeping or frowning by a blow 
trembling from the fear of pain or so forth, but we cannot cause a blush, as Dr. Burgess remarks, by any physical means, that is, by any action on the body. It is the mind which must be affected. Blushing is not only involuntary, but the wish to restrain it by leading self-attention, leading to self-attention, actually increases the tendency. And then we get thicker detail, thicker description about all this. He continues, the young blush much more freely than the old, but not during infancy, which is remarkable, as we know that infants at a very early age redden from passion. I have received authentic accounts of two little girls blushing at the ages of between two and three years old, and of another sensitive child, a year older, blushing when reproved for a fault. So there we can think about, the, you know, about children and blushing, children and embarrassment, and how children might become em embarrassed by being told off by adults. Women, he contends, blush more than men. It is rare to see an old man, but not nearly so rare to see an old woman blushing. The blind do not escape, he writes. Laura Bridgman, born in this condition as well as completely deaf, blushes. The tendency to blush, he continues, is inherited. Dr Burgess gives the case of a family consisting of a father, mother and ten children, all of whom, without exception, were prone to blush to a most painful degree. The children were grown up and some of them were sent to travel in order to wear away the diseased sensibility, but nothing was of the slightest avail. Even peculiarities of blushing seemed to be inherited. And this is one of the most extraordinary things. It Actually, it's how far the blush goes. And one James, Sir James Paget, whilst examining the spine of a girl, was struck at her singular manner of blushing, a big splash of red appeared first on one cheek and then on the other, splashes variously scattered all over the face and neck, and he subsequently asked the mother whether her daughter always blushed in this peculiar manner, and was answered, yes, she takes after me. He continues sort of observing this slightly further and looking at the movement of the blush down the body. According to Dr Burgess, he writes, the reddening of the skin is generally succeeded by a slight pallor, which shows that the capillary vessels contract after dilating. In some rare cases, paleness instead of redness is caused under conditions which would naturally induce a blush. For instance, a young lady told me that in a large and crowded party, she caught her hair so firmly on the button of a passing servant that it took some time before she could be extricated. From her sensations, she imagined that she had blushed crimson, but was assured by a friend that she had turned extremely pale. I was desirous to learn how far down the body blushes extend, and Sir, Sir J. Paget, who necessarily has frequent opportunities for observation, has kindly attended to this point for me during two or three years. Imagine that as a research topic, Sam. He finds that the with women who blush intensely on the face, ears and nape of neck, the blush does not commonly extend any lower down the body. It is rare to see it as low down as the collarbones and shoulder blades, as he has never himself seen a single instance in which it extended below the upper part of the chest. Dr Langstaff has likewise observed for me several women whose bodies did not in the least redden while their faces were crimsoned with blushes. 
with the insane, some of whom appear to be particularly liable to blushing. Dr. J. Crichton Brown, a wonderful name, has several times seen the blush extend as far down as the collarbones and in two instances to the breasts. He gives me the case of a married woman aged 27 who suffered from epilepsy. On the morning after her arrival in the asylum, Dr. Brown, together with his, with his assistants, visit her, visited her while she was in bed. The moment that he approached, she blushed deeply over her cheeks and temples, and the blush spread quickly to her ears. She was much agitated and tremulous. He unfastened the collar of her chemise in order to examine the state of her lungs, and then... A brilliant blush rushed over her chest in an arched line over the upper third of each breast and extended downwards between the breasts nearly to the ensiform cartilage of the sternum. This case is interesting as the blush did not thus extend downwards until it became intense by her attention being drawn to this part of her person. Goodness me, Sam Willis, what do you make of all that? I love the I love the question of of working out how far the blush extended downwards. It's which one of those. It's a, just a brilliant question, <laughs> one I haven't thought about. But it's why I'm not a scientist. <laughs> it's kind of the the it's the sort of the intensity of of embarrassment. I think. Yeah. Yes. I uh, know. I loved it. I, I, I fantastic stuff. Well done. Um, I'm going to carry on just talking briefly about uh, a, a political embarrassment when I was inspired to by, um, you know, a Bush carrying on on sitting there reading out books to 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 kids when the um, aeroplanes were flying into the twin towers. Uh, and there are all sorts of ways you can think about political embarrassment. I was trying to find the best example of someone who who who's like utterly humiliated in a in an election. Um, so what you've got here is a kind of it, it, it's so public that you're personally rejected, your policies are rejected um, by the, the general population. They're literally signing a little piece of paper or putting a cross on it and saying, absolutely not. I mean, the last person I want to have in power is is you. And you've you know put yourself up there in front of everyone as a professional politician. And it, that utter rejection on such a profoundly public stage I thought was was a very very keen form of embarrassment I, I couldn't come up with a better example I don't think than Kim Campbell in Canada in 1993 who essentially destroyed the progressive conservative party it was only the third time in Canadian history that the prime minister uh, loses his or her um, riding their own their own local seat at the same time as the party loses an elections all of the progressive conservatives running for election lost their seats with just one exception, which I think is an extraordinary figure. Um, but it also made me realise that, you know, for everything that went wrong in that campaign, you look into it, it's fascinating in its own right. But there's, there is important history here with political embarrassment. And actually, uh, her predecessor, a chap called Brian Mulroney, um, had caused 95% of the problems and a lot of the public vote was against was against him and it was a rejection of him and what he had been doing and Kim took over too late to be able to do anything about it at all. So I really loved the that idea of um, history playing a particularly uh, a potent, having a particularly, uh, being a particularly potent ingredient to political embarrassment. I also was thinking about the uh, the school, as I was saying, with Bush, and that reminded me of Dan Quayle in 1992. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I, I still remember this story being um, 
being uh, being transmitted on the news. So you've got you've got Dan Quayle. He's a politician, and he attends a a, um, a, a spelling contest at the Munoz Rivera Elementary School. It's in New Jersey, and there's a twelve year old who's asked to spell potato, and he spells potato, and then. He spells it correctly, P-O-T-A-T-O. And then Dan Quayle, <laughs> in front of all of the cameras, and it's being broadcast, just gets his pen out and adds an E <laughs> on the end. <laughs> and, of course, that is not how you spell potato. And um, just looking at the wriggling of how he managed to get out of that, he blamed everyone apart from himself. He said he knew it wasn't with the E on the end, but he was given a kind of a correct card by the school. It was their fault. Um, anyway, and the, the the extreme wriggling of getting out of something which was so fundamentally awful, I absolutely adored that. But I think that one of the best ones I've come across um, was one from Nixon. Nixon's just brilliant if you're a historian and you're in, you're in, you ever need any source of anything interesting, go to Richard Nixon, so President of America uh, from 69 to 74. And what he does is he goes and visits Europe, right, and he's really impressed with the uniforms of the the kind of the palace guards sort of you know traditional palace guards you might get in um well you know any any of the old european monarchies primarily lots of um uh, sort of elaborate decoration um and so he comes back and he changes the uniform of the white house guards and and then he gives them double-breasted white tunics with starred epaulets gold piping draped braid tall sort of faux leather plastic hats um decorated with a huge large white house crest um like like a sort of crazy costume drama kind of thing or a um uh, something that had been invented for a a, a Disney <laughs> a Disney film, completely extraordinary. Anyway, they last they last a week or ten days or something, and it was reviewed this um, ten years later by the LA Times. When then President Richard Nixon took a trip to Europe in the early 1970s, he was so impressed by the West German police uniforms, he ordered similar outfits for his own White House guards. The 32 gaudy uniforms, which caused the White House nothing but embarrassment, have now found their way to Iowa, where an official said they will be sold to small town high school band, unable to outfit itself. <laughs> so Nixon spent a fortune personally designed these. And um, if, you could, if you fancy a laugh... And someone just getting it properly wrong. Uh, just, just search up um, Nixon's designs for the White House Guard, and um, it made me think of that um, Sasha Baron Cohen film, Dictator, um, where, where where someone's put in power and they they give themselves a, a fantasy outfit to to go with their new power. Wonderful stuff. Excellent. I I, I feel about the spelling issue as well. Uh, as somebody whose spelling is entirely shot, I spend a third of my time reading standard um, English spelling. Uh, I lived in America for three years and there had to spell in American spelling. And I spend a lot of my time in the early modern period when orthography was not fixed. So spelling is all over the place. What's a boy to do, Sam, with such 
constraints on one's on one's ability to spell and it means that I'm constantly embarrassing myself normally in front of my wife who has made a, a whole career out of out of language um, and can correct me um, all the time uh, the other thing that I that I think about is politicians politicians and scandal throughout history politicians have been embarrassed by not only by the decisions that they make in public, but also their private lives and their discretions in private lives. But probably most characteristically recently by Paul Matt Hancock. Can we just call him Paul Matt Hancock? Um, <laughs> I have very, very little in the, reason to call him Paul Matt Paul Hancock. Matt, but, well, he's, he's yeah. poorer now. Ironically Matt, poor, poor, yeah. poorer. Poorer <laughs> Matt Hancock now. Um, but I think, I think there's a man whose whole career has been destroyed uh, by a himself. Pri- private indiscretion, uh, by himself, um, and you know, and the sheer embarrassment—not only for him, but also for his wife, who had to publicly, you know, step through that. Um, you know, hats off to her for you know for dealing with that so well. Um, but you know that that sort of public embarrassment, I think, is 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 um, an extraordinary thing to look at yep. as a historian. Um, which brings me on to the politics of humiliation, which I'm, which we've talked about before, a modern history by Uta Frevert, uh, who's a German historian. We talked about this in our podcast on humiliation, and there were various things that we were, we were talking about there. But what I wanted to hone in on here was one particular example of, um, of embarrassment. The the act of the state to embarrass individuals, to humiliate them um, and to cause great shame and embarrassment for them. And there's a great section from page 54 onwards where she deals with uh, Nazi Germany, with National Socialism. And it's sort of it's titled symbolic pillories and pillories were a sort of medieval device where people would be would be sort of ritually shamed. And what she argues is that during the period of the second half of the 1930s, we have the emergence of effectively these kinds of medieval forms of ritually shaming people, ritually embarrassing people. Now you've got this is a if you think about the the way in which this survives in German society you have there's a very long tradition of informal village courts in which local communities use practices of humiliation in order to in order to sort of defend their own boundaries in order to punish people who who deviate from what are the the norms it's a way of of controlling people and 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 defining what pers- what human dignity is. Now, in in Germany in the 1930s, from about um, 1934 onwards, the regime implements what are called social courts of honour, where where comrades would repent for insults and other transgressions of of duty. Um, and that these are basically people are forced to go through humiliating forms of punishment in order to sort of bolster these these community feelings and there are various examples of this um people tend to be really interested in this you know communities tend to be really interested in this and what it means is that actually within nazi germany the interests of individuals were subservient to the communal good 
In other words, you were protecting the honour of a community by enforcing particular forms of behaviour. And there's one example that actually made uh, international news at the time. And this was where, uh, uh, on the 19th of August, 1933, the New York Times reported, and I quote, the brutal treatment of a non-Jewish girl of 19 who'd been found in the company of a Jew. So I, I think they, you know, just ritually humiliated her, shaved her head. And this was viewed by a group of British tourists who wrote to the Nuremberg authorities and and said that they they described it as as that they were disgusted and it disgusted all foreign visitors to the city. And at the time, the 24 year old daughter of the newly appointed U.S. ambassador to Berlin uh, a woman called Martha Dodd was in town, and this was a time when, you know, when she herself and and wider nations um, had you know some enthusiasm for national socialism. This is before any of the sort of you know vehemently anti-Semitic um, sort of public policies were coming out. So you know there was some sort of you know expectation and enthusiasm, but then. She and she describes, you know, feeling, you know, feeling really excited at a at a at a rally and 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 Heil Hitlering, um, you know, with great sort of enthusiasm. But this instant made her feel really uncomfortable, really. And she describes herself as feeling nervous and cold. The mood of exhilaration vanished completely. She describes that the young girl looked ghastly. Her head had been shaved clean of hair and she was wearing a placard across her breast. We followed her for a moment, watching the crowd insult and jibe and drive her. Quentin and my brother are several people around us. What was the matter? We understood from their German that she was a Gentile who'd been consorting with a Jew. The placard said, I have offered myself to a Jew. So there are, you know, there are practices, gr group communal practices, of shaming individuals for particular types of behaviour. And this is frowned upon by the international community, not only by these, these visitors, not only by the daughter of the US ambassador to Berlin, but also the New York Times headlines read, Nazis use penalty of medieval days. And so there's this idea that they're bringing back these sort of, you know, these rather outmoded, um, disgraceful, disgusting sort of practices that have no place in the 20th century. Um, but there is there is call within Nazi Germany itself for reintroducing the pillory, and some of the leaders sort of want want this brought back, but it doesn't get it doesn't get um, you know full uh, support, so it's not brought by back. But what you have is a sort of symbolic pillory. So rather than the sort of pu public sort of you know degrading of people and violence against people you have you have people shamed in public you know and they have their names listed for particular activities in newspapers in 1935 the ministry of justice for example ordered press offices to and i quote release the full names of people sentenced to long prison terms as a measure of deterrence the public was given priority over the consideration of the individual who was committed who had committed a grave transgression so you've got all these people who are basically being named and shamed 
in in public in these newspapers. You've also got people having to engage in acts of public humiliation. In Austria, for example, before the Anschluss, you know, um, communists were forced to scrub their party members' graffiti from walls, houses and off pavements, for example. Um, Jews in 1938, um, women were, and old men were forced to their knees. Um, they were shaming by the local police. You know, uh, Viennese Jews you were having to sort of scrub off graffiti as well. You know, so there were all sorts of ways in which these people were being utterly humiliated. It was also something that was used against the people who wanted to, who tried to assassinate Hitler. And they were, you know, these people, um, the trial was, was, was recorded. They were wearing sort of, you know, clothes that made them look like clowns. Um, but one of the saddest uh, examples that I came across was the way in which individuals were shamed in um, were shamed in in concentration camps, um, where where there were there were almost no limits on this. And there's one uh, individual uh, who sort of falls from from power is is put into a, a prison camp at Bourgamore. Uh, and arrives in 1933, and the US guards gave him, as a fellow prisoner recalled, and I quote, a pair of trousers much too short and tight, which gaped in front and had to be fastened across the belly with a piece of string. They pulled out the tail of his shirt in front, then they gave him a coat which had to put, which he had to put on inside out. On his head they placed a tiny soldier's cap. He had to press his feet into clogs with rubber leggings, in which he could scarcely walk. With roars of laughter, they led him to in this outfit from one hut to another. The SS man in the cooking hut had prepared his welcome for him. He dirtied his hands with soot and hit him in the face. Now, one of the things about this shaming is that a lot of it seems to be being generated uh, at, at grassroots. So a lot of it is the local communities themselves enforcing particular kinds of behavior the stormtroopers in the early part of the regime you know almost are a blind eye is turned to them but there are also examples of the nazi leadership not 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 liking this sort of disorder that's going on and 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 stamping and stamping down on it i mean hitler for example showed you know showed disfavor at some level um, but it still continues and is a really marked feature of Nazi Germany uh, and National Socialism up until the outbreak of uh, the Second World War and then and then beyond. So there we are, Sam. Embarrassment. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, amazing, isn't it? Just all the different ways you can think about it. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed listening to our history of embarrassment. And um, there's many more great things coming your way. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history and the sea in general, please listen to my podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. We also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you want to support us in the way in which we change the way in which people approach the past or look at the past, we also have a Patreon page. 
uh, Histories of the Unexpected on Patreon. So anything that you can help support our endeavour would be very much appreciated. It absolutely would. Thank you very much indeed, guys. We'll be back again soon. Bye. Bye, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.